Women, Success, China is powered by the Seneca Network. We are a bi-weekly podcast focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Many thanks to the entire team at SubChina, including co-producer Kaiser Kuo, Jason McRonald for ending, and Jamie Lue for marketing. We have a really exciting opportunity that we want to share with you all. So for the first 50 listeners that leave a review on iTunes, they'll be entered for a drawing of a free one-year membership to the China Institute. So this one-year individual membership includes complimentary admission to select programs, including arts and culture, business, fashion, food, film, unlimited complimentary admission to China Institute's gallery, a 25% off discount on all gallery publications, a discount at Jiangnan Chinese Cuisine Restaurant with the valid membership card, a discount on admission for fee-based programs, and a discount on tuition for classes at the School of Chinese Studies. There is a lot included in that, and we will be giving that out to one of our listeners that leaves a review, and we'll be doing a drawing once we hit those 50 reviews. So you're hearing me right, get listening to the episode, click write a review in the Apple Podcast app, and be sure to share your email in the review so we can track you down if you win the drawing. This week we are joined by Tabitha Grace Mallory, who holds many titles. She is the founder and CEO of the China Ocean Institute. She is a PIP fellow at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations and an affiliate professor at the Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. So we first dig into her research, which focuses primarily on ocean governance and fisheries policy. We also talk about the cadence of her career and how she forwent a career opportunity to forge her own path, building something of her own. We also talk about co-parenting and how it's had a positive impact on her life. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ta for Ta. I am Juliana, and today we're joined by Tabitha Mallory. She is the founder and CEO of the China Institute, as well as a PIP fellow at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations and an affiliate professor at the Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. Thank you so much for having me, Juliana. I think this is such a great idea for a podcast, and I'm honored to be included as one of your guests. Yes. And so, you know, I think a great place to just start is, you know, can you tell listeners a bit more about who you are and almost a, a highlights reel of your career beyond, you know, just those titles that we gave at the beginning? Yeah. So I guess I should probably start off kind of with, you know, like college. So I, I really took the scenic route. Uh, I started, um, I, you know, after I graduated from high school, I actually took a year off um, before I started college. And Worked a little bit in a law office and then went traveling with the family to Southeast Asia to work kind of as an au pair, taking care of, of their daughter. And we went to Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand. And we happened to be in Singapore for the Chinese New Year. Um, and I was just fascinated by the Chinese orthography, you know, just all the characters everywhere. And so I came back. And you know, went started college the next year. I actually went to the University of Florida for the, the my first year of college because I'm from Miami originally, and took a mm. year of Chinese. I had taken Spanish, you know, for years growing up in Miami, and I wanted to do something new. And Chinese just seemed, you know, useful. I mean, this was back in the late '90s when a lot of people were still studying Japanese. So I'd considered doing that, but then I thought, you know, a billion people speak Chinese. That might be useful someday. Um, and then I went on their program to Xi'an and did like an intensive Mandarin studies program in Xi'an. And that's what really kind of got me interested in environmental issues because the the air pollution was so bad there. And so I came I back from, yeah, so I came back from that, you know, just kind of thinking, wow, someone's got to do something about this. And then I took another year off actually and transferred, worked on transferring to the University of Washington. Um, I'd spent a summer out in Seattle and just absolutely loved it. Uh, out here in Seattle and um, worked in a law office, saved up some money. And then, yeah, moved out to Seattle, did another four years um, of college and double majored in uh, international studies and then Chinese language. And I wasn't even intending on majoring in Chinese language, but I had so many credits of, of just Chinese, 
you know, language classes that if I just added a few more, you know, literature and history classes, I could get a major. So I actually ended up not even with a double major. It was actually a double degree that I had in the end because I was in school for so long. But yeah, then worked for a couple of years at a think tank that does Asia policy research. And that really got me interested in policy. And I realized looking around at the people who I was working with that if I wanted to work in a think tank, you know, in the long term, kind of, you know, where I was thinking about what I was aiming to do, you know, where I might end up at by the height of my career, a lot of those people who were in management positions at think tanks had PhDs. So that's kind of where I started to think about, you know, maybe I should go get a PhD. And I didn't want to be a professor. Uh, I really wanted to be on the ground, kind of, you know, in the think tank world, advising policy, you know, not just very theoretical. I really wanted to apply, you know, kind of mm. the thinking about a lot of these issues. So then I went to the Hopkins Nanjing Center to kind of, you know, work on my Chinese a little bit and then finished up my master's degree at Johns Hopkins SICE and then kind of rolled into the PhD program there. And my advisor was Mike Lampton, and he was just absolutely fantastic. I really appreciate his attitude about China. And yeah, and so that was pretty much it. I, you know, ended up with uh, my PhD in international relations from the China Studies Department and I did my dissertation on Chinese distant water fishing. So I'd actually like to go back to some of those early career, early life experiences. Was there almost a light bulb that clicked for you that, you know, you wanted to study oceans, marine life, fishing, um, China even? What was kind of those early career influences for you? Yeah. So, you know, I think I've heard other people say this too, that when you look back on, you know, what you've done so far career-wise, it all seemed to make sense as if it was some, you know, master plan, but it, really it's not like that. It's just, you know, I think a lot <laughs> of things are, you know, chance and, yeah. um, and so I, looking back, there's a lot of things that make sense, but I think at the time I would never have known. So in terms of oceans, you know, I grew up in Miami, which is right on the ocean and my parents met working for Norwegian Cruise Line. Uh, so they, you know, I spent a lot of time in my childhood on ships, on the ocean, which I loved, you know, just being out in the middle of the ocean, not seeing mm. land as far, you know, as far as you look, it's just the ocean on the horizon. I mean, that's a very, you know, it's like also at night, it's just, it's kind of a magical experience. Um, I, I wouldn't have said then that, oh, someday I'm definitely going to study the oceans. Um, but looking back, I mean, there probably was some of that influence. Um, and then for China, you know, this is kind of funny too, also a Florida connection, but I, you know, so being a Florida kid, my family went to Disney World a lot and Epcot has the world showcase where they have all the country pavilions and we went right. to the China pavilion. And, you know, I, I do think there is something there, something that inspired me, uh, you know, maybe not just about China, but, but Asia in general, um, and then really what happened was when I was in high school, I was reading about Taoism and the Tao Te Ching. And I just had this naive notion that I wanted to read the Tao Te Ching in the original language, which, you know, now it wow. just seems absolutely ridiculous because I had no idea at the time that it's essentially two different languages. Classical Chinese yeah. is really different from modern Chinese. And even, even if you have studied classical Chinese, it's just a really obscure text. Um, so that was also, that was part of it. Um, and then of course there was that, that trip to Singapore and, um, but yeah, I think those were kind of some of the, the early influences. What are people asking you to comment on frequently? You know, what are some of the most pressing issues that, you know, people are talking about right now? A lot of people are, I mean, if you're thinking about, you know, kind of ocean, oceans overall, there's a lot of discussion about seabed mining and, you know, what's going to happen there. The International Seabed Authority is, you know, working on developing kind of like a framework to grant countries permits to do seabed mining. But, you know, that's, that's a really interesting global governance question, too, because their, you know, um, scientific and advisory committee is made up of only 24 people. And so, you know, these 24 yeah. people are essentially deciding, you know, like what, what gets to happen in terms of the seabed, you know, on the, on the high seas and, you know, how we're going to manage that going forward, who gets rights to what. So that's a really big issue. There's also what's called um, BBNJ, Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdiction. So essentially on the high seas, again, how to protect 
biodiversity, but also, you know, there's, like I said earlier, there's a lot of potential for marine pharmaceutical development, you know, marine genetic resources. How are we going to approach that? So there's, there's really kind of two concepts here that are, are a little bit at odds with each other, actually. Um, you know, one is this freedom of the seas idea that Hugo Grotius was a proponent of, you know, in the 17th century, um, which mm-hmm. is, you know, like uh, free seas treatise that he did. And that's that, you know, everyone has, you know, free access to the seas in terms of shipping, fisheries, all the common pool resources. Mm-hmm. But then there's this idea of like, you know, um, shared heritage of mankind that, you know, like all of those resources belong to all of us. And, you know, we do have kind of like a duty to, pr- to protect them. And, you know, and like we all have kind of a say on, um, you know, like in terms of how they're being used and, you know, like some of us might not want, you know, all the seabed mining to go on and possibly destroy a lot of the biodiversity down there. And so in that sense, we kind of do need to put some limits on our freedom to use the oceans and kind of striking that balance is is what is at the heart of a lot of those high seas issues. So another high seas issue is um, fisheries. And, you know, so a lot of people are interested in that and, and particularly China's distant water fishing industry, which is their fleet that um, fishes in the um, coastal areas of other host countries and their EZs based on like a bilateral fisheries access agreement mm-hmm. and then on the high seas. So that's something that I do a lot of work on. And then Arctic issues. So both uh, uh, oh, polar issues. So both in terms of the Arctic, which is obviously opening up, you know, um, the ice is melting thanks to climate change. And so there will be a lot of new shipping routes up there and, you know, access to resources that were off limits before, both, you know, like fish and other, you know, like hydrocarbons. Oh, that's another big issue too. I don't work as much on hydrocarbons, but, you know, oil and gas in the seabed is really important to people. So as someone who's not completely versed in this space, can you actually explain the difference to me between seabed mining and then, as you said about hydrocarbons, where you are mining the seabed? Like, what is the difference between those two? And, you know, what are the implications of that? Hydrocarbon discovery in the South China Sea is kind of what launched the dispute that we see today. So in the 60s and 70s, there was some exploration being done down there and they discovered these mm-hmm. deposits of you know of oil and gas um and and that's you know and and this is you know like the, the backdrop of this is you know kind of putting this um system you know the UN convention of the law of the sea system in place to govern resources and and this idea of sovereignty that you know countries need to have kind of sovereignty over these spaces in order to um, or jurisdiction in order to extract the resources. And so people right. kind of started to scramble to, you know, like establish their jurisdictions. So that's kind of, you know, like what really spurred the South China Sea, uh, you know, conflict that we have today. Um, and so that's really just, you know, like, you know, like oil and gas has been something that, you know, countries have been, you know, kind of seeking for a long time. Um, the seabed mining is a little newer, um, so what that is, uh, is like these deposits of metals that, uh, you know, they have these like polymetallic nodules on the seafloor. A lot of it comes from, you know, there's a lot of volcanic activity on the ocean floor. And so vents that spill out these minerals, you know, those kind of like, you know, actually more uh, resources on the seabed floor than are found on land. And so these are things like wow. metals like nickel, platinum, uh, manganese, copper, gold and silver, you know, just a lot of lead, a lot of the inputs for our high-tech objects like our cell phones and computers. And so not only is there an increased demand for these inputs uh, for those industries, but also the, the science and technology has made it easier to actually access these deposits of these um, minerals on the seafloor. And so countries like China especially are you know, very interested in exploring these and developing them and, and using them in their supply chains for you know, these high-tech um, objects that we're all making and we're all you know, adding our demand to. You know, there's such an inherent tension just with the ocean and it being a free space. I mean, having so much valuable resources that are in the ocean – you know, how do you think about and how does the field think about really balancing the almost power struggles that are associated with the ocean? And, you know, how does your work 
relate to that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the trade-offs in a lot of the issues that I've just mentioned are between, you know, the the inputs that we, you know, the resources that are essentially inputs into our ocean economies or economies in general that come from the ocean. Um and then living resources like fish, which people need as a source of food, but then also do, you know, kind of play a role in the ecosystem and they're part of, you know, a food chain that doesn't even include humans. You know, there are larger predators that, you know, essentially compete with humans for, for some of the mm-hmm. fish that, that we're uh, capturing. You know, when you're thinking about, for example, the seabed mining, um, you know, a lot of that is in an environment, you know, deep in the ocean that doesn't have a lot of fast recovery. And so when you're drilling, you're disturbing, you know, an an ecosystem that, first of all, we don't really know that much about. We've explored very little of the, the seabed floor, the deep seabed. And so you're stirring up a lot of dust that is, you know, Mm -hmm. potentially covering the surroundings. And because it's so deep and there's just not a lot of light and, you know, like current, you know, movement, that destruction can just kind of be preserved for a long time. And um, those ecosystems don't necessarily recover. So, you know, we want to make sure, you know, we obviously, you know, need some of these materials, but we also want to make sure that, you know, we are, you know, I think a lot of the efforts to put parts of the ocean floor into, you know, like marine protected areas is, is a really smart idea. It's kind of the precautionary principle to make sure some of that is protected and we don't actually lose a lot of this before we even know what is there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's just the inherent tension in all of this. And I don't think we have gotten it right. Um, I, I do think that it's great that there's a lot more awareness about it and people are trying to to work, you know, to strike a good balance. But yeah, that's kind of the tension that we're all, you know, facing, not just in oceans, but in general, you know, the, just the tension right. between, you know, like our, our needs for the economy, you know, versus the, the negative externalities of consumption. And yeah. So let's actually think about the China Ocean Institute. And I, I want to know about, you know, where... What's the origin story of it? What is really the the mission of the China Ocean Institute? And you know, what series of events spurred you to basically start the institute? Yeah. So I um so I'll yeah, the mission the mission is actually kind of long. I can I'll I'll read it to you. It's um the China Ocean Institute conducts research on Chinese ocean and fisheries policy to better understand China's evolving relationship with the world's oceans and to foster cooperation at the intersection of environmental, scientific, economic, political, security, and legal issues. So mm-hmm. it, it really does, it's a long mission statement, but it really does capture everything. You know, there's the policy aspect. Um, there's just kind of trying to understand what China's thinking about the oceans. And then really what I think is very important is, you know, this kind of cooperative, constructive attitude about how we manage an issue, uh, really a set of issues that are so interdisciplinary that, you you know, you, you really have to bring together, you know, all the, you know, the kind of those um, subfields that I mentioned to have a full understanding. So the way it came to be was, uh, so when I was kind of finishing up my PhD, and then after I I, uh, did my PhD, I did a a postdoc uh, at Princeton University through the, it was then called the Princeton Harvard China and the World Program. And then uh, one of the co-directors, Tom Christensen, and the other one is uh, Ian Johnson at at Harvard. Mm -hmm. So Tom, Tom Christensen moved from Princeton to Columbia. So now it's the Columbia Harvard China and the World Program. Yeah. So when I was kind of going, doing all of that, I was doing some consulting on the side. Um, a lot of the work that I do uses Chinese sources, like written literature and uh, documents from like the Chinese government, academic articles, media. So I mm. essentially read through all of these sources in Chinese you know, that aren't available in English. So they're largely written for a Chinese audience. And despite a lot of hesitation about how, you know, like reliable some, you know, Chinese sources can be, some of the data, you know, can, is, you know, it's, it's pretty well recognized, I think, even by Chinese people that um, some of the data has issues. But I think, okay. you know, like, despite all of that, it's very helpful for us to understand you know, how the Chinese are thinking about ocean issues and, you know, like the kind of narrative they're presenting, you know, to their own audience, um, to, you know, mostly it's not a foreign valuable. audience. 
yeah, so that's kind of the approach I take. It's it's very qualitative research, just kind of reading a lot of stuff in Chinese and writing about it in English. And so I was starting to get asked to participate in consulting projects, just kind of alongside my work, and which it actually fit really well because a lot of the stuff that I was working on was just great material to kind of feed into you know other organizations that were were um, doing work on these things. So like the World Bank, for example, I did a project mm-hmm. for them. Uh, World Wildlife Fund, uh, I did uh, a couple projects for them actually. Do you mind me asking, like, what type of questions are these clients asking you? Like, in, you know, why would they? Why would they come to? For example, the China Ocean Institute. Like what? So this was before I'd even established the institute. Oh, okay. Yeah, this was. Although the questions I, I think are kind of the same. So you know, there 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 aren't a, because you know, like I said before, there hasn't been a lot. You know, previously there wasn't a lot of study. You know, there's a lot of understanding, uh, or at least kind of work on um, maritime security issues with China, naval issues. I mean, obviously there's you know a lot of um, uh, people interested in, in kind of those issues, but less on, you know, the other stuff, like the environmental issues, the like blue economy issues. And so, um, you know, uh, organizations like the World Bank, WWF, I mean, there's, there aren't that many people working on these issues and have, you know, like the, the Chinese language ability who are non-Chinese, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of like based in the States. Um, I mean, there's a whole bunch of people, obviously in China. I mean, China has, you know, entire ocean universities, you know, like devoted to the study of, of right. oceans. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in the United States, there aren't a lot of people that are, you know, like really working on these things. And so, um, yeah, so like I've been asked to do like one of the projects I did was on uh, looking at these bilateral fisheries access agreements um, that China had signed with other countries and trying to understand what's going on there. Uh, for the WWF, one of the projects was um, on Chinese uh, fishery subsidies. You know, it's really helpful to be able to read Chinese, you know, to um, to kind of get that perspective for, you know, studies like that. So I was kind of doing some stuff like that on the side. And then, so when I finished my postdoc, uh, so I really wanted to move back to Seattle. And then there's this kind of interesting personal aspect here that uh, really is, is, you know, responsible for the creation of the China Ocean Institute, even though it wasn't like a really a, a career thing. And that's that. Um, so I had, um, I had gotten married uh, very briefly. Um, actually, the person was Chinese, although it doesn't, you know, uh, just because it's a China-oriented podcast, but um, <laughs> doesn't really necessarily say anything about what happened next. But um, uh, yeah, I did marry someone who was Chinese, and it was a very brief marriage. It ended kind of in a disaster. I won't go into it uh, too much, but um, understand. Uh, yeah, but a very uh, yeah short short kind of failed marriage, and around the same time, my best friend, uh, whom I've known since I was twelve, we went to middle school and high school together in Miami. He had moved out to Seattle, um, kind of because I was, you know, like I had gone out to Seattle and just loved it so much. So he came mm. out to check it out, got a, uh, had an interview at Microsoft, you know, took the job, also ended up loving Seattle. So, and he had been out here, you know, since, you know, we were in our early 20s. So I had gone to the University of Washington. He was out here working for Microsoft. And uh, so he also ended a long-term relationship around the same time. So we kind of mm. went on this retreat together, nursing our broken hearts and, had this idea to have a kid together as just friends. So, you know, we were kind of, you know, I don't, I, I wouldn't say either one of us is like bitter, but, you know, we're just a little disillusioned about, you know, like romance and kind of that, I mean, even though he's gay, but kind of like that traditional path to, right. to parenthood, you know, I mean, he always, even though he was gay, like he always did want to have kids. Um, but we were like, well, why don't we just, you know, the, this, the whole nuclear family model just seems very limiting. Why don't we just mm-hmm. do this as friends? I can't, you know, I couldn't think of anybody else I would rather have, you know, as the father of my child. And and I, I wanted to also disaggregate the parenting from the romance because I'd kind of experience what happens, you know, if you have a romantic relationship that just goes mm. south, you know, if that person is also, you know, you're the parent of your children, then you've got to deal with that person, you know, and, you know, really for the rest of your life and a much more kind of tense situation with a lot more baggage. So exactly. I thought, you know, like, wow, what a great idea just to kind of keep those two things separate. And then it just, you know, like, I'll always know that the father of my child is just you know, like a wonderful person who I, you know, like admire and respect and can trust and, you know, will never cheat on me. And, um, Mm. and then, uh, yeah. And then, you know, kind of have the freedom to, you know, like, you know, like in terms of my dating life, you know, the romantic side to, you know, like do whatever I want and not have to have, 
you know, the criteria of being like a, a potential great father, you know, be a part of the equation. So that's what we did. So when I was doing my, my postdoc at Princeton, he actually flew out to Princeton. I was keeping track of my ovulation. Um, and we, we, decided we would just try it at home. We like had talked to some other people who've done stuff like this. Mm-hmm. We did, you know, quote unquote, turkey baster style. So we literally had not a turkey baster, but like a, a dropper and a paper cup. And he was in one room and I was in the other room. And so we didn't have sex. We just, you know, um, did, you know, like this kind of at home, you know, turkey baster style. Um, yeah. And it worked on the first try, which was really shocking. Um, yeah, that is shocking. Yeah, we kind of thought like, oh, we'll try it at home for like six months and then we'll go see if we need to do IVF after that, you know, which uh, I kind of figured we, it would be a little harder. But um, yeah, so I, um, I, it was, it was actually a really tough career decision because I didn't think I was going to get pregnant so fast. And I had just kept applying for things, you know, thinking that, well, you know, if this is going to take, you know, like maybe a year or two, I need to be working at the same time. Right. And so I, I had um, gotten a fellowship based in, in DC um, that would have been at the State Department. And I was, you know, like five months pregnant when I got it. And and so I had to decide, well, am I, you know, going to, and and my best friend was very supportive. You know, he was like, well, we, you know, I can fly back and forth from Seattle. My mother was going to come up and help me, but it just seemed like it was going to be too much to you know, the first year of my child's life to be doing this kind of, you know, like highly demanding fellowship. Um, and I really wanted to be out in Seattle. I mean, it, it, it essentially boiled down to like, you know, do I want to just kind of pursue the career thing or do I want to have, you know, um, quality of life be a really big consideration. And I just, I love the quality of life out here in Seattle. It's just a, you know, great place to do outdoor activities. Um, I really like the values uh, in a place like this, it's very environmentally oriented. And so I decided, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to move back out to Seattle, you know, have this, you know, postmodern family. Um, but it did mean that I would have to be somewhat creative in terms of what I did for work. Before we even move on there, it, it sounds like such an easy decision now that you're talking about it in hindsight, but like what sort of criteria or who did you speak to? Like, how did you decide, okay, I have this amazing opportunity in DC, but I also really like the life that I am building here in Seattle. Like in hindsight, it's like, oh yes, of course that decision made sense. But in the moment, what were the factors that you were balancing to make that decision? Oh, in the moment, I mean, looking back on it, I think it really was the hardest career decision I've ever had Mm. to make. And I think I, I, yeah, I'm glad you asked about this because I think especially for younger listeners, I, you know, it, it's true. Like in retrospect, things seem fine now, but in the moment it was it was a hard time. So so what I ultimately went with in terms of the decision, I really wanted to take the fellowship. And, you know, it just having finished my PhD and, you know, like done the postdoc, I just kind of felt like finally, you know, I mean, like a... I wouldn't say a PhD in postdoc is is not doing, it's definitely doing work. It's kind of like apprentice-like work, you know, like I felt like my career had already kind of started, but I was finally going to just, you know, like not be living like a student anymore and like really have like a, a job that's making yeah. contribution to policy and everything. It's kind of like my dream come true. And also the fellowship um, that I had gotten, like a lot of people go on to take full-time jobs, you know, in, in, um, in the government. And mm. I just, yeah, I, it, you know, the people that interviewed me, it was just, it was really exciting. It was kind of like everything I could have wanted really um, in terms of a job. And so it was a very hard decision. So, and what ultimately did it for me was I would think about the position logically, you know, like moving to DC. I really love DC. It's a, it's like kind of, you know, one of my favorite cities on the East coast. And I think for the kind of work that I do, it's, you know, it's a great place to be. Um, you know, I was excited about the position. Um, but emotionally, when I would think about it, I felt exhausted. You know, just the idea. I mean, I have a lot of friends that work at the State Department. I know what the hours are like. And I would have had to have started when my baby was like just a couple weeks mm. old. And the idea of that just, you know, like I just I, I really literally felt in my body like a, a sense of exhaustion. And, you know, I, I don't think we should all make decisions just based on our emotions, but that was a pretty strong message for me. And that's what I ultimately went with. There was just something in my body that said, this is not going to be a good idea. But it was, you know, one of the hard things about that was um, I felt like I had let a lot of people down. 
uh, you know, like my PhD advisor, the people who had selected me for the postdoc that I did, you know, like all the the people along the way who had helped me and kind of invested in me. And all of a sudden, you know, like I move out to Seattle and I, you know, just stayed home with my child for a year, not working. And, and I just, you know, kind of felt like I lost a lot of momentum. Uh, and that was really hard. My son is five years old now and, you know, he's in kindergarten. He's, you know, self-sufficient in a lot of things, you know, not the kind of demands that like, a, you know, a newborn needs by any means. And I feel like I'm just kind of back up to normal speed. And, you know, like I, I wish someone had told me then. I mean, some people did, but I wish I could have like really heard it, you know, that like, don't worry, this is just, a, a you know, like a moment in time. It's going to be over before you even know it. And, no one's going to even really, you know, necessarily notice. Yeah. And that's kind of the reason why, you know, I asked. It's just, you know, putting yourself back in that that time and that frame and, you know, those friction points or jumping off points in your career. Well, yeah, let me keep going on about how Ocean, yeah. the China Ocean Institute was established. Um, so I started working again you know, once my son was like a little bit over a year old, I started doing some part-time work uh, at the this think tank I used to work at before. I mean, it's pretty much the only place in Seattle that does like Asia policy work. So I was working for them for a little bit. And it just, I, I was there for like a little over a year and it just wasn't the right fit. I had loved working there previously and it's what got me interested in policy. But I, I, I was not able to really kind of pursue the research that I wanted to do. So I left there and then I was kind of like, I mean, that was kind of like the second part of the, I don't know if you want to call it like, I guess it was like a, some, in some ways, like an existential crisis. Yeah. You know, like, what am I going to do with myself? I've spent all this time working on, you know, like developing this expertise and, you know, like letting all these people down because I'm not, you know, like, what am I going to do? And it was funny too, because like a lot of my friends were like, you know, after a couple months of, you know, like having left this organization and like not really sure, being sure what to do next, you know, like some of my friends were kind of saying, like, well, you know, like we understand, like, these are like my best friends who love me and like really support me. But they, like, even they were kind of saying like, well, <laughs> we get that you spent years doing this PhD and you like are really passionate about, you know, China and oceans and fisheries, but maybe you should try like, you know, maybe government affairs at Boeing could use someone like you or like Microsoft might want some expertise on China, you know? And I was just like, oh, but, you know, like, there's just so, such a, a, a need for more work on this topic, you know, like the oceans in China. So then I realized, you know, like, well, I have done consulting on this in the past. So why don't I just do more consulting? Uh, and, but I wanted to, so by then I had started teaching at the University of Washington. I had been asked to, to teach a course there and that ended up being uh, an ongoing affiliation. So I, I teach a course once or twice a year at the university, which is great. I, I love teaching. I learned uh, that I, I learned that I loved teaching when I was in grad school and, mm -hmm. and you know, that was kind of my dream job was to work full time at a think tank, do all the policy work, and then teach, you know, one or two classes a year uh, at a university, which is kind of like the Johns Hopkins SICE model. A lot of the, the faculty that they have there, you know, have some kind of day job. And then they, you know, right. as practitioners teach, which I think is, you know, it's, it's really great to have that kind of perspective uh, at a university. So that was kind of what I wanted to do. So I had the teaching thing in place, but I, you know, I couldn't, I just... I felt kind of like I can't just be like an affiliate professor as my, you know, like go to a conference and, you know, like I'm with like all these tenured professors and I'm just like essentially an adjunct, you know, like that kind of felt a little weird. And so I didn't, I wanted to create something that was bigger than myself and, you know, kind of a venue through which I could do the consulting. And so that's when I had the idea to create the China Ocean Institute, uh, which I ended up creating as an LLC. Uh, having gotten some advice uh, from someone who's been kind of in this field for a while, uh, who said that, you know, if you do it, because I'd been thinking about doing it as a nonprofit, um, which is really kind of more the type of work that we do, you know, like very academic uh, types of research and, um, you know, kind of on like a, you know, like environmental issues, um, not, you know, it's, it's very different from someone who's just like trying to make money from, you know, like, I don't know, like the tech industry or some kind of you know, like there's, there's not necessarily, you know, like a product that you can very easily scale up. It really is, you know, kind of more of this like nonprofit type of work. Um, but yeah, he just said, you know, it's just easier to avoid all of the, you know, kind of the 
paperwork and red tape that you have to go through, you know, like a board of directors and, you know, just all the, you know, like all the stuff you have to do to establish a nonprofit, you know, it's, it's just easier to manage an LLC and you can still do grants. You can still kind of do like the, the kind of work that you want to do um, through that. So that's, that's how I established it. And I also had, you know, kind of a, um, I, I spent quite a bit of time thinking about the name and, I ended up, you know, I, I thought, well, I really do think that you know, working on China and oceans will be enough to <laughs> enough for my lifetime. So, um, uh, so that's yeah, kind of what I decided for the name. Yeah. So, I mean, there is a lot in a name, and you know, within that name and within the work that you do, what are some of your main strategic initiatives right now? Well, this was actually an idea that came from this wonderful professor uh, whom I know at the University of Washington. He's in the School of Marine and Environmental Affairs. His name's Dave Fluharty. And he's been doing a lot of work with the the Chinese. He specializes in U.S. fisheries policy, but he's done you know a lot of work on East Asia, and you know has some really great connections over there. And so he's gotten a lot of interest from the Chinese about you know studying at the University of Washington. So the University of Washington has really great programs on oceans and fisheries. The oceanography program is has been rated number one in the country. The School of Aquatic and Fishery Science. Sciences is, you know, really well known for its fish stock assessment capabilities. And then there's this like kind of interdisciplinary school, Marine Environmental Affairs, which does more of the policy work. Um, so it's really actually great to, to be at the University of Washington um, to kind of, you know, like, uh, you know, have that community there as well. Um, and so you know, I, I had been talking with him and, you know, we were talking about how great it would be to, you know, have something, you know, like some kind of like partnership with a Chinese university or, and so honestly, like when I was starting the China Ocean Institute, I, I was really thinking like this could be something that would be great to have at the university, but that's such a kind of glacially moving, you know, bureaucratic mm-hmm. entity that, you know, it just made sense to kind of start as, as its own thing and then see what happens. But in the long term, I really do think cooperation on these issues with China is so important. And there's a lot of demand from their side also for, you know, just the kinds of knowledge that we have in the States about fisheries management. I mean, I wouldn't say, I mean, really, it's like no country in the world is perfect in terms of their fisheries management, but the U.S. has has done like a lot of great work. And so, you know, the Chinese are very interested in that. And the, the Chinese also have had some really, you know, pretty fascinating kind of uh, scientific and technological advancements, uh, you know, in terms of oceans, uh, aquaculture, um, you know, just uh, kind of like their marine spatial planning system, stuff like that, that we could also learn from. And so, you know, maybe someday I would love to kind of have, you know, something at the university, maybe the China Ocean Institute, you know, like the university version. But yeah, just kind of, you know, more interaction like that between the faculty, mm-hmm. you know, from both sides, uh, between students. I've been asked actually to go over to China and teach in Chinese about U.S. ocean and fisheries policy, which is something I really want to do because um, I just I think that's such a great idea to I mean, I'd really have to practice, you know, like them doing this in Chinese. Um, I remember lectures were two and a half hours. So that's a lot of. Content. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that would be tough to do, like two and a half hours. Um, yeah, but I gave a talk in Chinese about this topic last year, and uh, I, I actually did the lecture in Chinese. I ended up doing a lot of the Q and A in English. But it, you know, if you think about that, you know, like going over and like the you know, like if the language barrier isn't an issue, being able to teach, you know, about uh, U.S. ocean and fisheries policy, or or even you know, like kind of in a global, you know, like best practices sense. Um, you know, and have the audience like fully understand it, I think would be really yeah. great. Um, so that's kind of some, some stuff that I want to do. Um, you know, I haven't been running it that long. It's only over like a couple of years that I've been, you know, that I started this thing and have been running it. Um, and so it's, you know, it is like some trial and error too. Uh, I've realized that I don't love the administrative part of it. You know, there's just a lot of, you know, like all the taxes and the, you know, like coming up with an HR system. I have, you know, three employees mm. right now and, you know, like they all need, you know, kind of this like feedback on their work and, you know, like a system of, you know, like 
you know, evaluation and, and promotion. And, you know, you have to establish that whole system and like, it takes a lot of time. And so, yeah. So like last year I'd had this um, weekly seminar series where we were reading articles in Chinese on ocean and fisheries, you know, just various topics. Um, And I mean, that's really fun. I'd like to continue doing that, but also just kind of making time for that, picking the articles out, you know, so uh, there are a lot of you know, great ideas, but yeah, getting the, the scaling right, you know, like how, how many people do I really want to manage? Um, how much work can we really do? What, you know, like there's like the research stuff, but there's also these kind of like more public facing initiatives, you know, like, uh, like giving talks and doing things like, you know, cooperative partnerships, stuff like that. I mean, I think all of that is really great. Uh, but, you know, like the details of it, figuring all that out is, you know, it's, uh, not for the faint of heart. <laughs> I think right. there's a lot of things in life like that. Like if if you had known, I mean, that's kind of, kind of how I felt about like doing a PhD and even like doing this to a certain extent. Like if you knew, I think in a lot of cases, not just my experience, but I think for a lot of people, if you knew how hard it really was going to be like in the end, would you have actually done it? I don't know. You know, like it's, you really got to do things one step at a time. If you think about the whole picture at once, it can be overwhelming. So yeah, I think what I'm really I what I'm really trying to get from you and your perspective is, you know, what is your balance of research and advocacy? Like what do you find your purpose is within this greater context of talking about global ocean governance? Yeah, so I, I, it's a great question, and it's, it is something that I have thought about quite a bit myself, uh, even before I started this organization, but just kind of what my role was in terms of thinking about environmental issues, because a lot of people who do, you know, work on environmental issues are, you know, from kind of coming from an advocacy uh, position. And I, th- I think my starting point is somewhat, you know, one, I mean, I, we all have biases, right? Um, but, uh, you know, I do, obviously, I do think it's important, you know, kind of my, from a starting you know point, I do think it's important to protect the oceans, to manage those resources um, sustainably. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I, I probably am already slanted that way. Uh, but I do think that it's important to to be objective. It's important to, um, I, I, I mean, I think this is a skill that, you know, like beyond just kind of like, you know, academic research, I, I think it's a really important skill to, uh, to accept, you know, um, to see when you are wrong and accept that and kind of change your approach. Um, and I think, you know, having, you know, I mean, social science is, you know, there's a lot of criticism about like, is this really scientific? Can you really uh, apply kind of like a scientific method to to social problems? I mean, there's just so many different variables. It's kind of hard to control for that. And, you know, and like kind of really tease out, you know, how how much of an effect one particular variable is, is going to have on, mm-hmm. on any kind of outcome. Um but I do think, you know, at the very least, we can try, you know, as much as possible to to be balanced and, and objective. Um, and and I think this is also where the interdisciplinary stuff comes in. Um, I mean, I I don't have a fishery science background, so you know, it's really important for me to have you know those connections you know like who like people who do work kind of on the, the science and to to un- understand their perspective and you know kind of have some of their insights uh into what's going on um and 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 work together with you know teams of people so so that you know each person is kind of bringing you know like their own valuable perspective cuz you know cuz if if i'm only reading the the, you know, like the Chinese perspective on everything. I mean, there's no way to kind of, you know, like verify. I mean, I, like I said, I'm not a fish, you know, like I'm not kind of on the ground in China doing, you know, like sampling and stock assessment, you know, like that's, you know, like another skill set that someone else has spent, you know, like their lifetime developing. Um, but you can work together with people like that and kind of get kind of towards, you know, like a reasonable answer uh, for these things. So, yeah, so I try to, um, and that's why a lot of my work, uh, I, I do try to, you know, push a lot of the articles that I write through the peer review process and get them published in academic journals, because I, I think that process of peer review, you know, keeps you, 
you know, honest about, um, you know, like what's going on. And it just gives you really good feedback to kind of refine your, your thinking. And, but that doesn't mean that I, you know, like I work with a lot of people who, you know, work for um, advocacy organizations uh, and I think they all play a really important role as well, just kind of focusing attention on these issues. And even if, you know, in some cases, uh, you know, people like some of the advocates, you know, for a certain issue can be a little bit extreme um, in some of their techniques. Uh, I, I do think that, you know, if you if you have kind of people kind of working at those extremes, I mean, I'm not talking about like eco-terrorism or anything. I, I think that's like a, a very destructive and un- unhealthy approach. But, you know, if you have people kind of out there doing protests and, you know, just kind of, uh, you know, like really pushing for a reality that, you know, is more extreme than a, a lot of people, like you'll at least get the kind of outcome, like the balance that, you know, actually results um, will be you know, kind of taking into account, you know, like all of the, you know, like of those um, interests and, you know, like, I, I guess what you could say is like the people who are doing like extreme activities, um, like they kind of tug the balance, you know, like in, you know, a certain direction, um, which I do think is good. So I don't want to be out there, you know, like kind of tracking illegal fishing vessels and drawing attention, like publicizing all that information and drawing a lot of attention to it. Um, But I do think they play an important role, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, like kind of focusing our awareness about that. Uh, And it all does get factored into kind of like what the, the ultimate outcome is the way we manage, you know, fisheries, for example. Right. Kind of bringing it back to you. I'm assuming that a lot of people come to you for advice, um, not only about the work that you do, but also just crafting a space of your own. Have you found that there's been a piece of advice that someone's given you that you've actually found yourself giving to someone else recently? Yeah. One of the you know, I have this friend who, uh, you know, is, is, is a bit younger than me and kind of in, um, you know, like in the earlier stage of his career and he, he just lost his job and is, you know, just thinking about going to grad school and trying to, you know, kind of figure out, um, you know, what to do next. And I, I, I think it's really important to, you know, like no matter what you are doing, I, th- I do think it's important to do everything. I mean, I guess I, I guess I should preface this by saying, you know, like um, we live and I know this is kind of like a, a popular notion now um, that a lot of people are talking about. But, um, you know, we, like just the fact that we live in this, you know, very distracted environment, you know, like our attention is pulled in a bunch of different ways. Um and obviously there's like a lot of, of conversation around this, you know, like with our, all of our devices that, you know, like we're just kind of staring at. Um, and no one's like really reading full length books anymore. Uh, Everything's all bite sized. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, one thing that, you know, like in any job that you're doing, like, especially when you're starting out, you're going to be, doing work that you don't necessarily love all the time. Any job is like that. Even if you're, I I do, I do feel like I am doing my dream job. I love what I do, but Mm. on a day-to-day basis, there, there are tons of, like, there are definitely days where I'm like, oh, I hate this, you know, like, this is just awful. Like I'm agonizing about some, you know, issue, whether it's like, just administrative or it's like what to, you know, like say about some topic in a research paper that I'm doing, you know, like every job has, you know, like even your dream job has some issues. And so I I just think it's really important to, you know, like if you are going to do something to do it a hundred percent, even if it's, you know, like just seems like a very minor thing. I think it's a very good habit to get into like the littlest possible thing, um, you know, to, to really do your job well, and so, you know, like a lot of, you know, like the, um, you know, if you ever go to some kind of like Zen meditation retreat thing, you know, like they give people jobs like, okay, you're, you know, kind of side job while you're here is like scrubbing the toilets, you know, or like washing dishes. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, we all have little things like that every day, you know, and, and if you can, you know, like just take pride in everything that you do, you know, and do the job well. Um, it, it actually makes your enjoyment much better too. 
you know, like there's a, a, a certain kind of um, attention and awareness uh, that you can bring to something, even if it's like kind of an undesirable task, um, you know, and that you can come, if you give it a hundred percent, you can come out of it having enjoyed it more. I know it's a little bit, it seems like maybe a little bit kind of out there, but um, I, yeah, I just, I do think it's an, an important attitude in our day and age to um, just, you know, to try to, you know, like all the mindfulness exercises, like I do think, you know, those are very helpful. And if you can, you know, kind of apply that approach, you know, essentially to every area of your life, it just really improves the quality of your life. Um, right. Yeah. And I don't know if that necessarily, you know, if, if, if you kind of take a step back and if, you know, like you're trying to advise someone on, um, you know, like what kind of career choices should you make? Um, that's a, it's a tougher question. I, I do think you have to get the balance of, you know, like listening to people's advice about what you could do, but also following, you know, kind of that inner, you know, like that inner voice. Yeah. That's, I honestly think such a great note to end on. Um, just, you know, that it's, it's about balance. It's about finding what really matters to you. Of course, um, there are certain considerations that matter, but really finding that true, true calling, true understanding. So that's advice that I think can really resonate with a lot of people. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you so much, Tabitha. I think, again, you have this extensive knowledge and just, you know, this deep-rooted passion of really being able to explain the type of work that you do. And also, I think it's really interesting, you know, there there have been a few points in your career where, you know, you had to make big decisions and just kind of walking us through how you went about that decision making, I think was also really useful for listeners. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was great. And thank you again. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and that's it for today. Make sure to write a review on Apple Podcasts and leave your email in the comment. We're going to be giving away a free one-year membership to the China Institute that you don't want to miss out on. We're also getting more active on Twitter, as you've hopefully seen, providing content that really elevates and supports what you're listening to here. Our Twitter handle is at ta for ta And of course, we still regularly check our email at ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. Ta for Ta, Women, Success, China is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks again to Kaiser Kuo for co-producing, Jason McRonald for editing, and Jamie Lue for marketing. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta.